Good morning. Good morning, good morning, everyone. I was tempted to sing this little good morning song that my mom used to sing to me when she would wake me up. No, I'm not going to. It's, a, it's a one that talks about good morning and stuff. Anyway, good try, folks, good try. If you didn't already get one, we have the handouts in the back to kind of follow along if you want to take notes and those kinds of things. Uh, but what we're going to be talking about today is children. We're going to be talking about kiddos. So before we do that, uh, I do want to say uh, that it is necessary for you to recognize that this is not going to be like a parenting class. We're not going to talk about how to deal with your kids. We're not going to talk about discipline. We're not going to talk about how to disciple them or anything like that. We're going to talk about what, what does the Bible have to say to us about what, what kids are, who are they, how do they fit into the puzzle of what's going on, and who is responsible for them. And we're going to be looking at um, some, of the, uh, some of the misconceptions, the kind of false teachings that we'll find in our culture and our society these days. Uh, but what we've been doing up until today, we've been kind of walking through the doctrines of sin, uh, man, redemption, these kinds of things. This is where we're headed. We've been looking at uh, man. We just finished with teaching on divorce and remarriage and on homosexuality and transgenderism. And so now that we've kind of gotten the easy stuff out of the way, we're going to really dig into the hard ones now. We're going to talk about kids, okay? Okay. But again, this is not going to be uh, a parenting class. We're not going to uh, talk about specifics on how to deal with kids. We're going to talk about theologically who kids are. Uh, and so this is theological equipping. We're going to be looking kind of in two basic categories that I've put together. One is kind of the biblical understandings and expectations of children in the church and the home. And then we're going to look at places where our culture and society has kind of gotten it wrong, so to speak, uh, in ways that they would uh, preach to us about who children are and what they're supposed to be. And so we want to be able to be equipped uh, to be steadfastly committed to the Word of God uh, so that we can indeed be in this world and not of it. So let's jump into this first category, the kind of biblical expectations and understandings of children in the church and home. So the first point here is that having children is woven into the understanding of marriage, and this is true from the beginning. Uh, so in uh, the first chapter of Genesis, it says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So the idea here is that this is the very first command of God. God's first command that he gives once he's created somebody. He creates man and woman. He unites them in marriage, and his first command is be fruitful and multiply. It's the first thing God commands of his people. So uh, when we look at this idea, when we think about uh, God's command on us, uh, we can oftentimes, if this is... Uh, uh, something we recognize and we desire and we are married and we're struggling to have kids, this can be a place where we immediately begin to feel shame, begin to wonder, has God withheld his blessing from me? Do, am I not loved by God? And I just want to encourage you, if that's, if that's you, if you struggle uh, with conception, if, if that has been a difficulty in your life, uh, there's grace. And so as we talk about this particular piece of the puzzle, I don't want you to feel ashamed. I don't want you to feel downtrodden or less than or something like that. That's not the case. Um, but let's move on. Uh, children are a blessing. So in Psalm 127, uh, the psalmist says, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. 
So uh, this idea that children are a blessing from God, and they're not a blessing from God because of how they behave or how they affect your life or how you feel about them. They're a blessing because God says they are. They're a blessing because of the giver. The one who's given the gift of children deems them to be a blessing, and so because he has said so, they are a blessing. So in spite of the days where some parent might be super exhausted, their oldest kid is writing on the walls with Sharpie, uh, their middle kid is running through the house naked, uh, and their infant is screaming uh, with a dirty diaper, children remain a blessing. They're a blessing because of who says they are a blessing. God does. He says, I give them to you as a gift. They are a blessing and a heritage to you. <clears throat> so the general expectation here is for married couples that they would have children. Um, so let, let's move on to the next point here is that how does one become a member of God's family? So we, we often talk about uh, the people of God being the children of God. Uh, and so this idea is that in the Old Testament, God's covenant promise uh, was for those who were indeed born biologically into the nation of Israel. So one was born into the family of God. And this is the understanding that we've been looking a lot at in the study of Romans that we've been studying in our worship services as we've been preaching through the book of Romans, where we see that this Jewish heritage, this idea that I was born into the family of God, uh, that the Jews begin to misunderstand and misapply what that covenant means, what it means to be in that covenant, that they're somehow no longer culpable for their sin because of having been born into God's family. But it also meant that childlessness was seen as a lack of favor from God, that somehow God was withholding his blessing. There was this idea that if you did not have children, that you were paying for sin. You, you were getting punished for your sin. So in ancient Judaism, this was uh, seen as grounds for divorce. So a husband desired to have children, specifically male children, and if his wife couldn't provide that, they saw that as grounds for divorce in a lot of the, a lot of the ancient cultures. But in the New Covenant... In Christ, we are not biologically born into the family of God. We are adopted. So adoption plays a huge role in how we ought to be thinking of children, and it plays a huge role in how we ought to be thinking about our salvation, about the church. And so we'll talk a little bit more about that in a, in a few minutes. But the idea here is that in the new covenant, you are adopted, not born into God's family. And so in Romans chapter 8, it says this, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with him in order that we may be also glorified with him. So this idea of being adopted is significant, and we'll have a little bit more to say about that once we get to the ideas of, of raising children. So while children indeed are and were considered a blessing, and having them is indeed obedience to God's first command to be fruitful and multiply, they also had specific functions in society, uh, three of which I'll mention today. Uh, the first is the idea of carrying on a lineage, carrying on a family line. The second is to join in the work that is necessary in the family. So parents would need extra hands to do the work of maintaining fields and flocks and these kinds of things. And uh, <clears throat> the last one here is to take care of parents in their old age. 
So let's look at each one of these quickly. So the first is to carry on a lineage. So uh, the need for a male heir was high in order to retain and pass along property and possessions, land and so forth, and to maintain the family's line and their legacy. This need was so great, the importance of having a male heir to pass on uh, your possessions and land and things too, was so valuable and important that you had the uh, creation of, of something called a leveret marriage. And this is the idea where if I have a brother who is married and that brother dies and they have not had kids, then I, as his brother, am now responsible to take his wife as my wife and now try to have children with her. And those children will be in his name so that his name can continue, so that the legacy continues. And so this is focused around the male children. Daughters in the ancient world were considered costly because of dowries and things like that for giving them away in marriage. In many ancient cultures, <coughs> pardon me, the father would even have the option of refusing a child when they were born. So a child could be born into a family, and that father says, man, it's real expensive to have all these kids, and this one's a girl. I don't really want this one. Uh, I refuse this one. And then that child is just exposed, just left out in the element to whatever comes of her, uh, whether that is animals coming and taking her away, whether she just dies from exposure, or perhaps someone comes and finds her and adopts her. Now, I share this not because it's some sort of example of how things ought to be. It isn't but because I think there's a really close parallel that we see in our modern culture uh, in China where we have this kind of one-child-only policy. So from 1979 to 2016, China had a policy where you could only have one child, and it created the same kinds of thoughts, the same willingness to reject the blessing of God and say, I don't want the blessing that you give me. I want a particular kind of blessing. I want a male. I want a male heir, and I refuse to receive the blessing that you give me, and so I will send this child out to be exposed. And so the idea here is that Chinese families also wanted male heirs, and because they didn't get them, they would have daughters, they would either abort them in the womb, or they would set them out. They would hide them in dumpsters and things like this in order so that the one child that they did have would be a boy. And it's sad. This idea of rejecting this blessing, God says that they are a blessing, and to reject that blessing is a lack of acknowledgement, both of the Imago Dei, that all have been created in the image of God, but also that God blesses you with children. So, the next point, to join in the work and care for the home. Uh, so, so, we talked about these three ideas. The first one was to carry on a lineage. The second one is to join in the care of the work and the home. So, this included working in the fields, caring for flocks, cooking, cleaning, hunting, fishing. The girls would kind of be prepared and trained for the duties that they would have uh, as, as a future wife, and sons were typically trained in their father's trade, like father, like son. So, a fisherman would teach his son to fish. A carpenter would teach his son to carpent. I don't know if that's a word. Right? And then the last one is to care for their parents in their old age. So we see this in the scriptures, and we see it all over ancient literature, this idea that if I don't have kids, I'm in trouble. So it wasn't even, it wasn't even just this idea that I might uh, be divorced if I'm a wife who does not provide children for her husband. They didn't understand the biological differences between the notion that a lack of child, ch childlessness could be attributed to male or female issues. They would always presume it was the woman that was the issue. And so there was this idea that if I don't have children, I will die because when I grow old, I won't have someone to care for me. And even the idea that 
in the ancient world, especially in, in Judaism, there was this idea that the eldest son would get a double portion, kind of a double portion of inheritance. So all the kids are going to get something when, when dad passes, but the eldest son's going to get a double portion. There, is, uh, there are a lot of people that would consider the reason for the double portion being that that eldest son was also primarily responsible for caring for the parents when they got old. So, next point, parents have an obligation to make disciples of their children. Deuteronomy chapter 6, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So Deuteronomy is telling us uh, what God's expectation was for his people now that he's given them the law. Now that you know my law, now that you know what my expectations are, I expect you to teach your kids. And when does he want them to teach them? All the time. When you're getting up in the morning, you're having breakfast, when you're going to bed at night. When you're headed somewhere, anytime you're interacting with your kids, there's this idea that parents have been called to be making disciples of their kids, training them up in a, the discipline and instruction of the Lord, commending the works of the Lord to the next generation. And then in Ephesians chapter 6, there's more instruction for parents, but there's also a little instruction for kiddos. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you, and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. So there's a requirement here to be making disciples of your children, and fathers have been given a specific instruction not to exasperate or provoke their children to anger. And this isn't about whether or not your kids get angry. This is about whether or not you are, in your anger, training them in the discipline and instruction of you because you want them to conform to your image, or is it training them in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, because you want them to continue to bear his image rightly. But at the end of the day, the responsibility is on parents. And our next point here is that parents will be held accountable. So in Matthew chapter 25, starting in verse 13, this is the parable of the talents. He says, for it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also who had the two talents came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here, I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. 
He also, who had received the one talent, came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest." Now, this is primarily talking about what, we're going, what we are doing with the good news of the gospel. What are we doing with what God has entrusted to us? But it has a great application with children as well. When God gives us something to steward, he expects us to be faithful with it. There's an expectation that God has for us, if we're parents, to steward the gift of children well. That we would say, I'm going to take what you've given me, and I'm going to water it. I'm going to care for it. I'm going to try and multiply it. I'm going to be faithful with it. Rather than, I'm afraid that I'm going to mess this up. I'm so terrified that I'm going to mess this up that I'm just going to hang on to it and just make sure that it doesn't die. I'm just going to keep my kid alive. And when God, when God sees what we've done, he says, that's unfaithful. I've asked you to do a particular job with these kiddos. So the idea here is that we are going to be held to account as parents for whether or not we are faithfully executing this role, this job of making disciples of our kids. Now, there is also a role for the church to play, but it's a secondary role. As a church, as a body of believers, bears one another's burdens, serves one another's, we get to support and encourage and help, assist, pray for all of those who are raising children. We get to serve in preschool. We get to serve in the student ministry. We get to serve with the elementary kids. We get to help when a family needs the opportunity to have a date night for mom and dad. We can babysit for their kids. There are ways in which we can support one another when we have people that are raising kids. But at the end of the day, that responsibility, the accountability, falls on the shoulders of the parents. So when we look at Ephesians 6 and we think about the church, And this is something we talked about a little bit when we were going through the book of Ephesians. When Paul speaks to the children, when he says, children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right, he is speaking directly to the children. The implication being he expects that when his letter arrives in Ephesus and they read it, and when they pass it on to other churches and read it there, that when that letter is being read, that there are children hearing it. There are children hearing the message that Paul has written, and so he addresses these kids directly. The expectation is that children are indeed a part of the gathering. They're part of the assembly. They're part of the church. So a quick review. We talked about how the expectation for having children is woven into the reality of marriage. We talked about the idea that there are some societal expectations for kiddos, that parents have a need for their children to both care for them when they're old, to help with the work of the home, and to carry on the lineage, in particular with males. And so now let's look a little bit, after we thought about the church, let's look a little bit at what our society has to say to us. What does our culture tell us about kids? They have a lot of false things to teach us. And that these false messages are growing in their volume and in their belief. So the first one on the list I've got here is abortion. So abortion 
is indeed an Imago Dei issue. It is the idea that one would say that this child inside of this woman that is not yet born is not a person yet. The idea that it is not yet bearing the image of God, if indeed you believe that at all. And this is false. The Scriptures are clear that a baby is a baby, is a human from the moment of conception. From that moment until the moment of their natural death, they bear the image of God and deserve all of the dignity, all of the value, all of the worth, and all the protection that can be afforded for that life. So our modern progressive society would say that abortion is acceptable in spite of the fact that through the bulk of human history, that has not been the case. Now, there are pockets of places where certain cultures, certain societies have adopted this idea that abortion is okay, that getting rid of kids is a good thing. But even in ancient Mesopotamia, there was a law that stated if, if, a, if it can be proven that a woman has tried to abort her baby by her own actions, that she is to be impaled on a stick and left out to be exposed and not to be buried. The significance of the life of a child has been held for centuries. This idea that our culture has adopted that says abortion is an okay thing is a false teaching. And I don't think I'm telling anybody anything new here. But this is one of the places where our culture has said children are something different than what God says they are. God says they're a blessing. God says they're something that are a part of our society and they're a part of our gathering and a part of our community. And our society would say, no, they're not. They're to be discarded as easily as a piece of paper that you don't want anymore. Next one is spanking. So our modern culture is increasingly telling us that this is a bad, wrong, barbaric, and abusive practice. In fact, 52 of the countries on this planet have banned spanking altogether, even in the home. It's against the law to spank. But here in the United States, believe it or not, it's not quite as bad as we might think. I think as believers who mostly would adopt the idea that spanking is a good thing, that some sort of physical response to sin is a good thing, we, don't, we tend to think that this, is, that, this, uh, that this idea is getting poo-pooed a lot more than it is. Poo-pooed is a technical term. So believe it or not, there are still 19 states, in the United, uh, 19 states in the United States where spanking is still legal in the schools. You can still spank in the school system in 19 states, one of them, Texas. Now, because it's legal doesn't mean it's happening, right? It is rarely practiced. Each school board, each district has the opportunity to adopt or reject that practice. Most have rejected it. So what this means, though, is that 31 of our states have indeed banned it in public schools. And the good news here is that there is a, there's a Gallup poll that was done a little less than a year ago uh, that says 65% of Americans think spanking is a good thing. Not 65% of Christians, 65% of Americans think spanking is a good thing and ought, ought to be happening. Now, that also means 35% think it's bad and wrong. According to the Word of God, spanking is the only tool that is mentioned specifically for the use of a physical response to sin. It is the only tool that is given to us for specifically responding to our children's sin and dealing with them in a disciplinary way. And the Scriptures speak of it clearly. 
In the book of Proverbs, verse, uh, verse 24 of chapter 13 says, Whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. Proverbs 22, verse 15 says, Folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline drives it far from him. Proverbs 29, 15, The rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. Proverbs 23, verses 13 and 14, Do not withhold discipline from a child. If you strike him with a rod, he will not die. If you strike him with a rod, you will save his soul from shale. Next point on our list, self-esteem. Now, we're going to camp out on this one for a little bit because I think it is the most permeating issue in our culture. It is the one where believers are most likely going to agree. So the first, first place that I want to mention this that I think we can see this is in sports. You see this in sports where you've got kids learning how to play soccer and they play for no score. So you're playing a competitive sport, the purpose of which is to win, and you're not playing for points. And at the end of the game, everyone wins, everyone gets a trophy, everyone gets a ribbon, everyone gets a, you did it, way to go, you're the best. So no one ever learns how to win with humility. No one ever learns how to lose graciously. The motive for participating in the sport in the first place changes from learning how to work together in order to win and accomplish a goal to an individual participating because they want the reward that they know is coming whether they win or not. We see this idea of self-esteem getting into our schools, grading systems being altered to encompass more than just performance, grades no longer simply reflecting whether or not you were able to assimilate the information, do the homework, and regurgitate that information, demonstrating that you understand it and can work with it. But now, in some places, grades reflect also your participation in class, your attendance. So you can end up with a really good grade in spite of the fact that you don't know the information. All in the name of self-esteem. We don't want kids, we don't want them to feel bad. We don't want their feelings to be hurt. There are a lot of places where the grade of F, which we all know means fail, has been changed to NI, needs improvement. Well, yes. Parents have long been telling their kids, you can be anything you want. No, you cannot. You can't. What if 1% of all the high schoolers in the country right now wanted to be president, really genuinely wanted that? How many of them would attain that goal? Two? Three? Out of hundreds of thousands? Millions even? What if you wanted to be a Navy SEAL but you have epilepsy. You're not even going to get in the military. What if you want to be a doctor, but you don't have the dedication and the tenacity needed to kind of persevere through that rigorous education process? What if you want to be an engineer at NASA, but you're really, really bad at math and you kind of don't even do the homework? What if you wanted to be a major league pitcher and you, quote, don't have the present abilities that you need, they consistently fall short of those that are needed for baseball success. Now that one is for Zach. <laughs> I can't remember if he shared this with everyone or not, but if he hasn't, I'm going to share it. He actually got to try out for, as a major league pitcher for a baseball scout once, and that was the quote that was in his rejection letter. <laughs> but it did say he had a nice beard. So this notion of you can be anything you want 
has perpetuated and perpetuated and perpetuated in the name of self-esteem, in the name of not wanting our kids to feel bad or ever to feel uh, less than. We want them to always feel like winners. This has permeated itself, along with other thoughts and ideas that are false, into the transgender movement. I'm a boy. I want to be a girl. Okay, you can be whatever you want. Self-esteem is dangerous, especially when looked at incorrectly. So self-esteem has created parents that want to shield their kids from all difficulty. So the idea that our self-worth, this esteem, what we think of ourselves, which is what self-esteem is, it comes from doing and accomplishing, has created what is now known as helicopter parents who want to protect their kids from difficulty and ensure success. So a parent will swoop in and save their kids from any difficulty, will shield them. Your kid's about to fail a class, mom swoops in, talks to the principal, freaks out, says, no, no, my kid is special and you need to give them special treatment. And this continues on in their lives. So the kids are continually being protected in the name of self-esteem. Mom fills out the college application for them, writes their essay for them, fills out a job application for them, goes to the interview with them, Man, the best one that I've heard is a story about a little league. Well, I don't know if it's best, but it's funny. Uh, a little league coach and father in Long Island, New York. Uh, he felt like his son wasn't, was getting the short end of the stick. It sounds like from other accounts his kid just wasn't very good at baseball. But he was really frustrated by this, and so his desire was to get back at the coach who had not given his son the opportunity he felt like he deserved. And so what he did was he created his own baseball team. He spent $50,000 recruiting other kids who had also been kicked off baseball teams in order to beat this coach. So he spent fifty grand trying to get revenge on somebody he felt like had done his kid wrong. And this is the idea that permeates our society. This idea of self-esteem being the very thing we ought to be paying attention to, the very thing we ought to be concerned with. What do the Scriptures have to say? The Scriptures say that our worth and our value is a function of the Imago Dei. The image of God is what we bear, and that is where we can esteem ourselves. We can look at ourselves and say, my worth and value is wrapped up in who I am in Christ, who God has made me to be. Genesis chapter 1, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish and the sea of the birds of the heavens, livestock and over all the creeping things that creep on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So the problem isn't self-esteem itself. It is self-esteem that's rooted in false things. If my self-esteem is rooted in the knowledge that I've been created in the image of God and that I'm a broken sinner in need of a savior then I have accurate self-esteem that doesn't need to be coddled, that doesn't need to be protected, that doesn't need to be sheltered. But if instead it's rooted in something else, so we're all equal in dignity and value and worth because we bear God's image. And this is true for children as well. They don't have a different status in this department. We are all intrinsically fallen and sinful by nature, and if this is the self-esteem we have, then we see ourselves rightly before a holy God. We're broken sinners in need of a Savior. Now, our culture is increasingly telling us that our kids have their dignity and value and worth, not because of God, but because of their, the fact that they're just intrinsically good. 
Your kids are good. People are born good. And they can increase their value by doing and accomplishing. And everything that they want to do and everything they want to accomplish is within their reach. You can be anything you want. And this kind of self-esteem rooted in falsehood will lead and does lead to angry, depressed, narcissistic adults who believe that the world still owes them for their unattained dreams. Now, we don't want that to be true of our kids. We want to be faithful as we train up our children. But this is what our culture says. This is what our society says. This is what advertising teaches us. This is what movies teach us. This is what lots of books are teaching our kids. So are we aware that these messages are out there and are we doing something to disciple them toward the truth is the question. Next, giving children burdens that they weren't meant to carry. (coughs) Pardon me. And what I mean here is primarily around decision-making in the home. Our culture says that your kids are the most important thing in your home. They're the most important person in the house. And therefore, you ought to give them everything you can give them as long as you're able to do it. This goes for everything, whatever they want to eat. Historically, parents buy food, cook food, put it on a plate, the child eats it. That's the order of events. But in our society, our culture today, kids get to decide what they want to eat. Mom might make a meal, but the kid refuses it. And so now mom makes a separate meal for the kid. Food manufacturers have begun to see this trend and recognize that this is indeed the case, that kids are making the decisions and they're changing their marketing tactics. They're advertising to kids because they know if the kid asks for their food product, mom will get it and buy it and cook it and prepare it and serve it to them. This has to do, this, this idea goes into what the family is going to do. Historically, parents have decided what kinds of activities you're involved in. I'm sure that many of you, either yourselves or your friends, you've heard someone say at some point, yeah, my, my dad put me in piano lessons when I was eight. Right? It wasn't, I wanted to play piano when I was eight. Parents were making the decisions about what activities kids were involved in, and that's no longer the case. Kids are making the decisions. Kids are deciding what they're, what they're going to be doing. They're even deciding where the family's going to go. Historically, parents decide where the family goes, to the grocery store, on vacation, to relatives' homes. But if you've got a kid who doesn't want to go and throws a fit, there's this this willingness to capitulate to the desires of the child because they are now making decisions for the family. They are carrying a burden they were never meant to carry, and the parents are allowing them to carry this burden. That's a falsehood. This is not what they were designed for. Even where the family will live. Parents trying to create a democracy in the home. Shopping for a house. Do you like this one, Johnny? This could be your bedroom. I don't like the way this one looks, Mommy. Well, I guess we're not getting that one. That's that's actually happening in our culture. Where children are making decisions that they were never meant to create. Never created to make. One of the places I saw some of this creep into my own family when I was young was my grandfather passed away when I was 12 years old. And I was given the option of going to his funeral. Well, what's a 12-year-old boy going to say about going to a funeral? No. So I didn't go. I missed my grandfather's funeral. I wish I had gone. But I don't have the option now. But that decision was given to me, and I should not have been the one to make it. 
I'm not trying to disparage my parents. I'm just using it as an example. They were grieving, and they wanted to honor me in my grief. I know of a family that is waiting to have more children until their current children are ready to have more kids. We want to have more kids, but the kids we have right now, you know, that we asked them about it, and they're just, they said, not yet, Mommy. So they're waiting. So we're giving children burdens that they were never meant to carry. Decision-making is supposed to be made by parents. Ephesians 6, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. The implication being decisions are being made by the parents, and the children's role is to obey. That's their role. That's their job. Next, personal responsibility. Now, this is going to be a kind of a hodgepodge mix of responsibilities of parents and responsibility of kids. We're going to be doing a little jumping around, so bear with me. So the first thing I'm thinking of here is uh, that what we find in our culture is parents abdicating their primary responsibility for the education of their kids to the public schools. Now, before you start thinking, wait a minute, I'm a public school teacher. Are you telling me my job's no good? Wait a minute, my kids go to public school. Are you telling me I shouldn't send them to public school? Or you're a homeschooler, you're like, that's right. <laughs> right? We're not talking about that debate today. The idea here is that when parents have a responsibility with their children, our culture says, don't do the hard stuff. Find an expert. So we send our kids to school where they're supposed to learn math and English and reading and these kinds of things, science. But you, parents, are still responsible for telling them about sex. But over the last few generations, parents are like, I don't really want to tell my kids about that stuff either. Can you all do that? Will you all do that, please? So now we've got sex education happening in the schools. But the sex education is not biblical. It's based on the secular view of sex. And so all of these, all of these things, sex, marriage, homosexuality, transgenderism, all of the issues that parents ought to be talking to their kids about are being talked about in the public school system. Now, again, I'm not trying to disparage the public school system. I am a product of the public... Well, that's not a very good example. <laughs> Zach Lee is a... That's not good either. <laughs> Jeff Ashley. Jeff Ashley is a product of the public school system, and that is a good example. So, I'm thinking more about the increase of the desire of parents in our culture to abdicate their responsibilities just to others. There's even been a willingness to abdicate that responsibility to the church. I know that I'm supposed to train my child up in the way they should go. I know I'm supposed to train them in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. I'll take them to a church that has a really great children's program and let it happen there. I'll go to church. They'll go to church. It'll be great. My church is taking care of the discipleship of my kids my school is taking care of the education of my kids. All I got to do is feed them. And so what we end up with is we end up with this idea where what was once parents and teachers working together for the good of the child, you now have parents who no longer are interested in what's good for the child. They're now interested in what's good for the child's self-esteem, which they believe to be what's good for the child. And so now they are siding with their child and teaming up against their teachers and saying, oh, you have a problem with Johnny? What did you do to make Johnny act that way? And so there's this idea in our culture that says, you need to protect your child from everyone, including the people who are actually there to help you. 
Now, it's frequently parents and child against their teacher, and they demand that their every uh, whim is accommodated, uh, and this kind of connects back to this idea of being a helicopter parent. So parents abdicating their responsibility for instruction and taking on too much responsibility with protection of their kids from difficulty rather than danger has created kids that don't know how to take responsibility for their own actions. We are training up a generation of kids that cannot and do not care about the consequences or the responsibilities of what they have done or what they do. They have become entitled and self-centered and narcissistic. This is, what, this is the result of this kind of parenting. When it is not a faithful parenting style that is biblical in nature, this is what we often get. Deuteronomy 6, These words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your home, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Parents are clearly charged with the training and the instruction of their children. And again, I'm not trying to create a debate between public school and homeschool. I am firmly convinced that you can be very faithful to the charge on your life if you're a parent and send your kid to public school. I'm also firmly convinced that you can be faithful to God's charge on your life by doing homeschool or doing anything in between. I am also firmly convinced that you can be very unfaithful and send your kids to public school, and you can be very unfaithful and homeschool. It is not about the method. It is about the faithfulness. Are we doing what God has charged us to do? He has charged us to do a job, and he's not told us specifically how it's to be done, which means we have the latitude to choose how we educate our kids. But are we aware of what God has charged us to do as parents, and are we going to be faithful to do it? So let's talk about the church. Lastly, in the church... In most modern kind of Protestant evangelical churches, you'll find that as soon as a family arrives and gets through the front door, there's going to be an immediate segregation of the family that lasts until the service is over, and then the family can be reunited, head out to the parking lot, and grab some lunch. Preschoolers go to their rooms with super fun decorations that are colorful and beautiful and often depicting one of God's most horrific acts of judgment in the flood (laughs) as though that were some sort of fun and happy story. Elementary kids are going to go to a classroom that's based on fun and games and entertainment with some sort of moral lesson squeezed in. Not that there's anything wrong with fun and games. Those are good things. God is a God of fun. But they can indeed be a way to purchase credibility with a child. But we don't and we should not gather with the saints for the purpose of entertainment. Middle school and high school students will often shuffle off to some completely separate building they'll just kind of hang out, play video games, maybe talk for a few minutes about how to keep from sinning while they're dating, how far is too far. But in Ephesians 6, we saw the evidence that Paul expects children to be there in the gathering. And this is one of the reasons why we handle children's programming at Parkway the way that we do. It is not easy what we do. There are easier ways to deal with kids than what we do at Parkway. But we do it because we want to be faithful to God's Word as the church, as the secondary participant in the discipleship of the kids. We provide preschool programming and elementary programming during this hour, during theological equipping, because age-appropriate teaching is good and right. There isn't anything wrong with it. It's valuable. But then we stop providing elementary age programming during the worship service because we want those kids to go to service with their families and be a part of the gathering. 
because we believe Paul expects to see that. So we want to expect to see that. We continue to offer preschool programming because we believe that most of those kids aren't going to be as helped by that environment, nor will their parents. And so we want to serve them. And so I want to close with this quote from Al Mohler, the uh, president of Southern Seminary. He just uh, did a chapel at that seminary uh, on February the 22nd, and he said exactly what I want to say, except better than I can say it. So I'm going to read you this quote, and then we will be done, and I'll have Zach come up and do a little Q&A. This is what Al has to say. Wherever children are to be found, they are to be welcomed by Christ's people. Christ's people are to be more welcoming than anyone else to children. Our churches should not be places where adults cannot wait to put the children away in order to get to the adult task of worship. One of the scandals of so much evangelicalism is that we send people to their rooms as soon as we get to church. Now, I'm not against... I'm not arguing against the utility of a nursery for infants, and I'm not arguing against the appropriateness of special programs to teach children. I am saying that when you look at a church and you look at a congregation, you should see the congregation. You should see young people. You should see young couples. You should see older couples and older people. You should see those coming into the final seasons of their life, and you should see those in the beginning season of their life. You should see people sitting in the pews whose feet cannot touch the floor. And we should, in a church... Welcome the wiggling and the squirming, and we should hope that what is happening is that the Word of God is reaching those hearts in ways that those children, and I would add, that their parents don't even recognize. They are speaking as children. They are thinking as children. They are reasoning as children. But the Word of God can reach where we cannot go. It is one of the ordinary means of grace that our children in church with us will hear the Word of God and sing the songs and sing the hymns and hear the music even before they can sing it, in order that they, at the right time, by the grace of God, might find their voice. Let me pray, and then we'll have Zach come up. Father, we love you. We thank you for the opportunity that we have this morning to gather and to think about your word, think about kids, uh, and Lord, how we as a church can play a role in the discipleship of those kids. And we're grateful. We're grateful that you've blessed this congregation with many kids. We have lots of little ones, and so we're grateful. Uh, So we pray that you will find us faithful as parents, as individuals, to raise and uh, be faithful with our children, but also, Lord, that you would find us faithful as a congregation uh, to help bear that burden of discipleship together. We love you. We thank you that you love us, and we're so grateful for your son, that he's not left us alone, but he's given us your spirit, that we might know who he is and our hope might be in him. And so we pray these things in the beautiful name of Jesus. Amen.